Broadcasting from Orchard Park, New York, and Boca Raton, Florida, you are listening to Freight 360. Whether it's breaking news, tips to increase your business, or just some good old sports talk, this podcast is all about having a conversation about the world of freight. I'm your host, Nate Cross. And Benjamin Kowalski. Let's talk freight. All right, welcome back for episode 63 of Freight 360. Thanks for listening. We, we appreciate all the continued listenership that we've gotten over the past year plus here. Make sure to leave us that five-star review and leave us a, an actual written review. We've gotten some good feedback from everybody. Check us out on the web at Freight360.net. Give us a referral out to your friends and colleagues in the industry. We've got another great episode today. We're going to be talking about a cool, uh, a, a cool, I guess, solution to a problem that's out there involving detention with with our friend Eric Moline from Baton. So Ben, you and Eric had a bit of history together. Why don't you uh, give us a little rundown on, on what we got here? Yeah, we connected, met, I think it was what we were just talking about that off air about two years ago. I was looking to be a part of the Load Smart team when they were just coming on and was up in Manhattan. And that's where Eric and I got to know each other. And we've kind of kept contacts with each other. And now he's the found one well, on the founding team of Baton, as well as the head of operations over there. So really excited about what he was doing over there. We had some great conversations about what they're doing, how they're doing a lot to impact some really major issues with drivers out there. So I think just to kind of hear a little bit more and to dig into some of what they're doing with detention and dwell time. Thanks for, uh, thanks for having me guys. I really appreciate the time. Absolutely. So first, we've got to, We've got to get a quick little sports update. This is a unique episode for us. We usually record on Wednesdays. Today is actually Friday, so we're we've got a, a week before this episode drops. So we don't even know what the NFL is going to look like for Week Ten here. Although we do know that the Tennessee Titans lost yep. last night, and uh, it was a ten point game. So, or no, I'm sorry, it was like a fourteen or seventeen point game. <laughs> It was a, it was a three score. It was bad. It was bad for Tennessee. You've got two, six and three teams uh, now as a result of that game. Um, it was, uh, it was interesting. Did either of you guys watch that football game last night? No, didn't catch it. I, uh, I think I worked until like 10 30 or 11 or something like that. That's all it was. It was Indianapolis versus <laughs> Tennessee. So you had uh, Phillip rivers uh, just, he had like over 200 throwing yards just in the first half alone up against um, Tennessee and, and Ryan Tannehill. So Derrick Henry just couldn't run the ball very well. And who was favored going into it was Tennessee favorite? Tennessee. Yeah. Cause they were six and two trying to get to match my bill seven and two. And now they're sitting at six and three and uh, Indy made it up to six and three as well. So, but anyway, we're also in the midst of the masters. How did, how did day one go, Ben? Did you watch? I, I, mean, uh, I had it yeah. on this morning. Bryson, a little disappointing, I think, from what everybody was expecting. Tiger had a great day. It was his lowest first day of a Masters ever. Um, wow. And his strokes gained putting looks terrible coming into the Masters, as well as some of his play. But I think this year's been odd for a number of reasons, so it's kind of hard to gauge where he was at coming into it. But really performed well. Everybody's really excited to see what he does today. Um Brooks, not so great. I don't remember what he finished at, but I caught him. He was around one over when I saw him yesterday. And Rory looked pretty good, but I, no real big standout moments um, other than, you know, really Tiger showing up and really looking great. I do have an update on our discussion from the last episode on John Rahm's hole-in-one. So first of all, it was two hole-in-ones. He had one on Monday and one on Tuesday of the practice rounds. And hold, the second one, second hole-in-one where he skipped it over the lake, that was a deliberate shot. They were trying to have as many skips across the water. Um, as and he just happened to, to ace it. So doesn't, doesn't nice. count legitimately, but yeah, actually got a great funny, shot. Funny side note story on hole in ones. I was with a buddy of mine uh, that also works in the industry for lunch this week. And we were talking about hole in ones cause we've golfed together numerous times. And he was, he was with a, a friend of his when he got his first, his buddy got his first hole in one. And you know, you would imagine you're going to take that ball and never touch it again. The guy goes and tees off and puts it in the water on the next hole. Oh, like, like, come on. <laughs> if I got a hole in one, or I should say when I get a hole in one, that ball is going right in my bag and getting framed or something. I have one, but I don't, I lost the golf ball. Oh, at least I did. I had it for a while. 
I had it for a while. It was on a shelf and it was in an office and then somewhere moving. And I, I got, I lost it, but yeah, didn't, at least I didn't put in the water in the next hole. <laughs> yeah. Eric, are you a golfer at all? Um, I try, you know, I'll occasionally I'll swing sticks when, uh, when there's the opportunity, but I can't say that I'm it, like, you wouldn't want to golf with me. That's, that's I like the, to golf with everybody. Verdict. Same here. Good, good or bad. Yep. As long as you can keep up the pace, like with people that are just, just got awful at golf, as long as they just pick their ball up at some point or they'll drop quickly and stop looking for three minutes every time they lose a ball. I don't even care if you're good or bad. It's so funny. It's people that I- are super good and are cocky. That's when I get pissed off. Cause I'm like, all right, I don't shove it in your face when, you know, yeah. I get a par. I was, or a I was playing, I played Oakmont <laughs> a year or two ago. And I remember my cousin's a really good amateur up in PA. And I said, I was like, Hey, anything, any tips before I go play Oakmont? It was all intimidating. You know, it's like one of the best courses in the world. And he goes, yeah, if you're playing bad, play faster. He's like, that's it. He's like, if that's you're holding it. the group up, pick your ball and move to the next one. He was like, it doesn't matter how well or how bad you are. I mean, I played pretty decent, but I mean, it's a very difficult course. He's like, pick your ball up and just make sure you're not slowing down the group with you. Yeah. Slow pace is what really kills it. Even good or bad, slow pace will kill. It'll piss off everybody because then you get you you lose your rhythm. So, yep. Good stuff. All right, let's get into the episode here. Let's let's get into it. Eric, we've got, you know, I'll be honest, I don't know a whole lot about Baton. I know I've done a little bit of um, looking into your guys's website and I read some articles that talk about detention and dwell and some of the the solutions that various companies have come up with here. So give us a high level overview on kind of how Baton came to be. What was the the issue that you guys were seeing in the industry and how did this all start? That's a, that's a really great question. There's a, fortunately, there's a pretty great story for it. So at a, at a high level, the highest level, really, our, our mission is to eliminate wasted time in trucking, which, you know, if you, if you look at the mission statements of a, you know, a handful of the digital brokers out there, it's not super different. Um, but the way that we're solving the problem and specifically the fact that we're going after dwell and detention is very unique. Um, and so you, you'd asked also how we came about that, uh, like that, that sort of mission or how that was, you know, that became our, our MO. Um, so the, the two founders, uh, co-founders, excuse me, uh, Nate Robert and Andrew Burbrick, they were both, uh, entrepreneurs and residents at ABC. If you're not familiar with ABC, they're a, um, I think that they're like sort of the, the, the foremost VC fund when it comes to logistics investing and, and stuff. So for example, you know, they're in project 44 freight waves, platform science, baton, um, you know, they're, they're in some really, really cool companies. Is this like a private equity firm? I, I don't know what venture capitalists versus uh, PE firms. Are they kind of the same thing where they're investing into companies to grow them? Um, they're the same thing in that it's, it's generally private capital. Um, okay. they're different in what sort of companies they invest in and what sort of metrics they care about when okay. they evaluate companies. Obviously, if you're going to invest in a venture capital firm, yeah, uh, venture, um, like a new business venture, you know, a startup, you're not going to look at, you know, EBITDA versus, um, or you won't come up with a multiple evaluation that's, you know, an EBITDA driven multiple. Whereas that makes you know, if you're looking at a, a startup, you're going to look at different metrics. Um, so they were both executive, I'm sorry, entrepreneurs and residents at ABC and had spent a bunch of time talking to a ton of different executives in the industry, working on identifying what was effectively the, like the biggest, periest and, you know, still unsolved problems in the space. And the one that they, they came to, and this was after conversations, you know, with executives at companies like Prologis, Prologis is an investor in, in Baton, um, was that detention and dwell are consistently issues, but they're, they're the sort of issues that are, they're almost like they're structural in that everybody knows about them, but nobody continuously, it's not like a major focus at, at any point in time. Like people talk about the driver shortage. People talk about how much freight there is in the market or how little freight there might be in the market, but nobody's talking about how absolutely absurd it is that you, the entire industry requires, you know, drivers where there's a shortage of them to give two hours of their time for free, which is absolutely preposterous to me. We'll, we'll get into that. I'm sure. Yeah. So on that note, I don't, I don't mean to cut you off, but let's, let's take a, a quick look at what detention is versus what dwell is. So um, detention, and you make a great point. It is absurd that it's just an acceptable error or, you know, misorganization led 
problem in the industry, but let's take a look at what is detention at, at the core level and then what is dwell and how, where do they overlap? What's the differences? It's a, it's a, it's a really great question. Um, so detention is generally when a driver has been waiting at a shipper for overseer for more than two hours and they arrived on time, um, you know, and went through all of the protocol that they would need to in order to sort of be classified as being uh, detained. And, um, you know, after that two hours, they're then eligible for some sort of compensation. Dwell is effectively the same concept. It just doesn't take that compensation into account and it doesn't have to be at a shipper. So let's say that a driver arrives to a shipper three hours, let's say six hours even before the appointment, which happens all the time. They're going to arrive there that far ahead of the appointment. Shipper is going to tell them, no, we, you know, we can't load you yet. And you can't say you can't hang out here. So they're going to go find somewhere to sit while they're waiting with their trailer. That's full of freight or waiting to be loaded. But that time is still wasted. And so you still have to think about that time. So that dwell is, is really what, like when, when you talk about like the broader picture, that's what dwell is, is not just when you're hanging out in a shipper or receiver not being paid. It's, it's when you're just hanging out, not doing productive work. Yeah. It's an, it's an inefficiency. And I think there's, and I would imagine Baton's probably not in this space, but think about empty mileage. So if you've got a carrier that's that's doing a carrying an empty trailer because they have no freight or they're deadheading somewhere, that's another efficiency. We could talk about that on a you know another episode. It's another discussion. But these inefficiencies they do exist, and if we can find a way to address them and minimize them as much as possible, because you can never have a hundred percent efficient system. It's just not realistic, right? We we live in a a human society where errors and issues pop up that are beyond a single entity's control. But if you can minimize these, that's going to, I would imagine from an outsider's opinion, that'll put more profit and business and in, into everybody along the supply chain to everyone's pocket. So, um, all right. So back to, back to what you're saying, that's the tension and dwell. They both are inefficiencies. One is obviously going to be related to somebody's fault of not being ready to load. Whereas dwell is just, Hey, you got there early or something along those lines. So, uh, all right. So you, you identify those and then what happens? Um, so Nate and Andrew, you know, after talking to a whole bunch of executives in the space that identified those and, um, you know, I, I started doing some research and there's, there's a really interesting concept that if you look at airports, for example, let's say that you're going to, from, let's say you're going from Dallas to, um, I don't know, Lansing, Michigan, for example, you're not likely to fly into Dallas or into Lansing, Michigan. You'll probably fly into Detroit and you'll, you know, maybe take a puddle jumper into Lansing or, you know, maybe you're going to take a super long Uber ride. Um, but the, you know, you don't have a 747 flying directly into Lansing, but right. that's what we do in trucking. You know, so we have the same great piece point. of equipment analogy. go from Los Angeles to the final destination in LA. A lot of times we're fortunate in that it works out. You know, the system was sort of built in a way to accommodate those things, but because there is just inherent inefficiency there, the system can't accommodate the way that that, you know, sort of just works all the time. Um, you know, and so after evaluating it, they, they'd sort of realize that there's an opportunity that if you have these effectively these, these drop plots or, you know, you think of them as like a truck port, uh, you know, you have your OTR driver who will, drive, let's say again, from New York to LA, they'll hit our yard in Fontana. They'll drop their trailer rather than finaling to, um, whatever, you know, live unload or even, uh, you know, whatever it might be a live load, whatever's going to happen with that trailer rather than finaling, uh, to the location, let's say in Ontario and waiting for a whole bunch of time, they drop that trailer and there's already a trailer that will be there ready for them to do whatever they need to next. And they just hook and turn. So then let me ask you this, with that kind of concept, who owns the trailers and are these just power only drivers or is there trailer swap and interchange? What's the, what's the concept there? So it's a great question. So our customers are the OTR companies. Um, we just had a press release uh, this earlier this week, excuse me, about our partnership with CRST. So to use that example, you know, CRST will have drivers who are coming from all the way across the country they will drop a CRST trailer in, in you know, one, of our, uh, one of the yards that we work with. And then we have dedicated capacity from some local fleets. And the, those drivers, you know, are, you know, we'll, we'll effectively provide them the direction on, okay, so this trailer needs to go here and it's going to have this sort of thing happen to it. And then you're going to do this with that trailer afterwards. And then it's going to go back to the yard. And that's sort of the way that that, that operation works. 
Okay. So the, the, the idea, if we're going to break it down Barney style is if we don't, if we can have trailers essentially preloaded and position them efficiently, it's going to effectively eliminate or minimize as much as possible that dwell in detention. Cause you're not worried about how busy, cause we all know we've all heard drivers that have talked about horror stories, trying to get an appointment at a Walmart facility or you know, any of the big name DCs where they're like, Hey, if it's first come first serve, good luck. You're going to be there so many hours and you're not getting paid those first couple hours. That's just part of the game, um, which is an inefficiency. Uh, so by trying to minimize that, it's going to just keep the ball rolling, keep freight flowing as quick as possible, keep drivers driving and doing what they do best, which is to move freight from A to B. So that's yeah, exactly. how I see it broken down in a, in a you know, Barney style level there. Yeah. And it's really to build on that. Um, if you think of the example I'd mentioned earlier, well, let's say a driver's going to arrive at a facility or right around that facility six hours prior to their appointment, which as a, as a forewarning, I'll say it happens so much more frequently than you might expect. Like the, the number of times that we get a trailer dropped in our yard more than 36, even 48 hours before a live unload appointment is mind boggling, which means that someone would have just sat there for that long. Um, you know, so, so rather than a driver sitting and sitting and sitting, they're going to drop that trailer in our yard. The next trailer is going to be there. It's going to take them, you know, maybe 30 minutes, 45, if it's really jammed and they'll turn and burn. And you just think of the Delta between that six hours and that 30 minutes and that's time that becomes productive. That's so huge. let me ask you this. Cause I spent a, a few years in the LTL world in operations. So I'm very familiar with the flow, the, the, I guess the spoken hub mentality when you look at going through reship facilities and all that to try and eliminate inefficiencies. Is there a, is it kind of relate to the LTL model where you're trying to get freight constantly moving from point to point to point. So it gets to its destination um, or is it more of a, you want to have a big long line haul and it's just that last mile, which your process comes into play to, to reduce that inefficiency. Or is there many, many drops along the way? How does that look? So that's a, that's a really great question. Um, most of our volume that we get either inbound or outbound is regional where the, the okay. length of haul is, um, you know, so if we're thinking about LA, for example, you're not going to leave the Western 11. Um, some of the volume that we do handle though, on the other hand is long haul. So it's not uncommon. And, and you know, we know this information because when you make pickups, and this is something I'd learned when I joined Baton that I didn't realize is that when I was a broker, but when you make pickups, what information is really necessary in order to have the shipper release the trailer that's you know preloaded. Um, most retailers will require you to provide the final destination. And so we can see a lot of times, you know, that these things are going you know, from LA to Massachusetts or to North Carolina, but I would say probably 60 to 80% of our freight, it's a, you know, obviously a wide range, but a, a good chunk of our freight, the majority of our freight is regional. Okay. That's cool. I like that. I like that. So I, I'm, I'm curious on some of the numbers here. And uh, Ben, I know you and I have, have looked at detention in the past and the cost that goes along with it, not just in, in, you know, what is paid out, but also just the loss of, yeah, I guess future business because a truck's not able to be making money doing something different. But um, Eric, is there, do you have any kind of big level numbers on the, what this problem in the industry is, is costing over a certain period of time? And how you, how have you guys figured out reduction in that waste? Have you, have you looked at any specific metrics on that? Yeah. So, so our, our estimates show that the problem is at least a hundred billion dollar problem. And I say at least is that because, annually? Yeah. Good question. Damn. Um, a lot of money. And I say at least because the, the, the thing that we keep seeing is, you know, we, we might learn about some quirk that's relative to one customer and, and, you know, that uncovers something else. And so we, we keep seeing these opportunities where it's like, okay, so if you use us, then it adds this much more productivity and adds this much more and it keeps compounding. And so pretty soon, you know, you realize that the, the hundred million is it's a floor. It's not a ceiling because again, you're talking about productivity, which means that you're really evaluating an opportunity cost of what you can do with that time, that driver, that asset. Um, 
Yeah, well, so 100, 100 billion is that's the floor. Well, that was the other question, right? So, because we were talking about back of the napkin sketches, when you think about it, right? Like this total cost right now, where's that pushed off on, right? Are the shippers eating much of that? I mean, they are in, a, in an indirect way, but in a very direct way, this cost gets pushed off on the carriers, right? On the drivers. You think about the number one way we sell loads when we were all brokers, right? Is you're selling on that aspect. Like the shipper's great. He's going to be fast to get you loaded. He's going to be fast to get you unloaded, right? This that's their biggest pain point, right? So what are some of the feedback you're getting from some of the drivers once they start operating with you? Um, the, the feedback has been nothing short of incredible. So, you know, the drivers that we've talked to for our OTR customers, um, you know, they, the feedback has consistently been very, very positive you know, that they're not spending time at a Walmart facility and even for drop and hook facility, uh, drop and hook for, excuse me, they're not spending all the time, you know, the two hours it would take them, you know, to, to get through the line to check in and then to find their trailer in the yard. That's one in however many yards. And then to pre-trip that trailer after a yard go pulls it out. Cause it's packed, et cetera, et cetera. You know, so, so they really appreciate it because it's so much more um, smooth. It's such a better experience for them for our, our local fleet. They, on the, on the other hand, you know, they get, they get some of the other benefits that, um, you know, they really appreciate. So these, you know, these guys are, they're home every single night. Um, you know, they, they also, we make sure to take time to explain the mission to the local drivers that we work with the, the dedicated fleets we work with. So they, because they see that they then understand the purpose of the work that they're doing and they buy into it, which also makes a huge difference. I mean, imagine if you just like you're working blindly versus knowing you're working towards something. Absolutely. Well, yeah. I mean, we talk about that a lot in coaching is having a goal, knowing why you're doing it and being more like having your defined purpose as to where you're moving closer to. We don't need to reach it to feel fulfilled and to be passionate about getting there, right? Making the progress towards it is what gives us that rewarding feeling. And just like, you know, you and I talked about like, how much energy do you have when you're working towards this, right? You're working what, 14 hour days on what, your 10th week straight? Do you feel um, like any of that energy is any less? <laughs> Uh, so we're, we're on, I think I'm averaging about 18. Um, but to your point, the, there's, there's a, there's a degree of physical exhaustion that absolutely sets in just because, you know, you work that many hours without long. You're still human. Inevitable. Right. <laughs> but the, the mental side, like I'm no, there's no sense of, of like emotional or mental burnout whatsoever. Yep. Uh, you know, and it's just, and part of it is that this is, this is something to me that is, it's so absurd board like not even borderline but so absurd it's, it's in my opinion it's disrespectful that that this is still a problem um because you're dealing yeah, with no one's addressed time. it no one has seriously addressed it in the past right and i i also i understand at the same time you know and this is why we're in business and this is why we believe in this model i understand like we had to invent a new model effectively um for our you know for, for the problem to be addressed and that's not to say that this model doesn't occur in some vacuum so for example if you look at you know, any of the major carriers, they have, uh, they'll have yards and they'll have local drivers that they work with, but nobody, nobody sort of uses a model where it's, um, it's effectively shared across fleets, you know, and captures that inefficiency because you still see the inefficiency, even when you do it on a one carrier basis, you know, with the local fleet, it's just, yeah, again, it's, it, there's no burnout just because it's so, uh, like, how is this not fixed yet? Sort of so, and let me ask you this. So you, you bring up a, a point about different carriers. Um, I want to, I want to shift a little bit and focus on the, the ideal, or I guess who, the, the kind of carriers you're, you're aligned and partner with now. And then how does that look for some of the smaller carriers? So like Ben, we've talked about the, you know, was it 90% of the, the trucks out there, the carriers out there operate with, you know, seven or less or 20 or less trucks. Is there an ideal fleet size that that Baton's solution works with or is it just the mega carriers only i mean i'm thinking about trailer drops and positioning if you don't have a whole lot of assets does this still work or is there is this maybe something that you guys are developing across the board for everybody how, how does that look for different size of fleets so we work with um we work with a lot of different sized fleets um the our number one customer is a top five. Um, obviously, CRST is a very large carrier. They've got a, a huge number of assets, uh, you know, trailers and tractors. Um, but we have we have supported smaller companies in the past. Um, you know, it's it's interesting in that really, in order for this model to work well, it's not surely a size thing. In fact, if anything, size is is 
um, you know, like you, you just have to sort of like clear a certain hurdle and it's not a super high one, yeah. um, but it's more operationally oriented around like the way that you work with your shippers and um, the, like some specifications on your equipment. You know, a good example is you can't really relay freight very well if you don't have a bill box on your trailer. It seems really trivial and small, but like, what are you supposed to do? Put the bills in a Ziploc bag and tape it to the front of the trailer. Hopefully the wind doesn't blow. <laughs> that's a good point. So that's yeah. a great point. But most trailers, you'd, you'd be like a lot of trailers on the road. If you look, a huge number of them have bill boxes. So it's again, it's not yeah. like a, it's not a huge screen. And by the way, they also cost what fifteen dollars on Amazon. Yeah, if that. Yeah, because that point, and, and to circle back, one of the things that I was thinking a lot about was in our conversation that we had was how much efficiencies you get through shared information, right? Because that's also something that you guys are doing and scaling that, right? That can be done even for brokers right now within their customers, right? That allow them to get some inefficiencies with their shippers. Like talk to, can you tell us a little bit about a little bit more on how that shared information about what different SOPs to different shippers and sharing this amongst carriers some of those examples of it and how just astounding it is that none of that information is shared in the market. Yeah. So, uh, there's, there's one, there's one facility in particular that's sort of my, my favorite, if you will. Um, and you know, by the way, you're obsessed about a problem when you start developing favorite facilities. Um, <laughs> there's one facility in particular, it's a Walmart distribution center in, uh, in LA. Um, it's, uh, it's in you know, Miraloma and, there's, by the way, there's like seven of them heads up. Um, but this one in particular that I'm referring to has, has three yards. Um, each yard has at least one entrance. And I believe one of those yards has even two entrances. And the, the thing that really is interesting about it is if you know that facility well enough, you know that it makes anywhere from, let's call it, you know, five minutes if there's no other trucks that are in line uh, to find out that your trailer is not in the yard that you're in the line for, which is the, 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 that one yard is yard number one. And that's always the, um, that's always like what's on the tender. Basically it's a, it, when they send you a, you know, pick up at that location, they don't send you yard five and oh, this is the other address. They yeah. just send you what's on the tender. And they also likely don't tell you even what yard it is. Um, but so if you get into the, if you get into the wrong line on a good day, you're saving five minutes or losing, excuse me, five minutes on a bad day, you have easily burned two hours of time mm. that actually that happened just the other day where, um, you know, there was no way for us to avoid it. We needed to get in the super long line. And like this thing, this thing goes all the way down the street, wraps around the block and then goes down that street too. It's unbelievable how, how long these things get. And it's, you know, it's, it's as simple as developing a relationship with that facility so that you can get access to the information and say, Hey, where's this one trailer? Yeah, because for them it's also good, right? Like they right. they want to turn freight. That's what they're supposed to do as a distribution center. They're supposed to turn. Um, and those things exist more frequently than you you like a lot of people might realize. They're huge. You and I talked about this in a different context years ago as it related to drayage and how yard pools and container pools and how you get them in and out and just the inefficiencies around it. And that's the other big issue is that the amount of time that drivers just burn because a broker didn't get the information or that the DC didn't provide it and they just auto tender it with the same address without taking an extra couple minutes to asking or making what, a two, three minute phone call and going, hey, can we confirm this trailer's in the right yard before we dispatch this? How much easier everybody's life would be. And it's just, you know, sometimes asking these additional questions. And we get this a lot, Nate, right? Like brokers say, well, you know, how do I, how do I provide value to carriers? How do I differentiate myself? This is how you can do that. Even if you just have a customer is knowing where some of these things are, the SOP and saving the driver some time before you dispatch them. So let me ask you this then, Eric, if someone's going to implement a solution like Baton, is this, is Baton actually a, a licensed brokerage company or is it a, is it a, 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 I guess an entity that works with just straight with carriers or is there a relationship with brokers? Where, where does Baton fit into the actual implementation and day-to-day -day operations as it comes to this kind of stuff? Sure. So we've, we've, we've supported broker customers in the past. Um, and uh, so there's the answer to that question, by the way. Um, you know, so we've, we've supported broker customers in terms of the way that we operate. So we have a broker authority. 
Mm-hmm. And probably very, legally have to, right? Just so the, we, one, we legally have to, but the other very specific reason is, is that as a, as a startup tech company, it doesn't make like, we will see, but we will have a greater impact on the solution and, and addressing the problem by investing differently than just simply buying trucks. Uh, and the reason I say that is because the way that we sort of get around the fact that if you, if you buy, if we were to buy capacity on an open spot market, the service that we are able to provide would not be nearly as good as it is. So um, our service level with our number one customer is like 90, it's 99, I should say it's like, it is 99.7. And I have to look at yesterday's numbers because we may have finally rounded it up to 99.8. We're talking like four misses, five misses in 12, 1300 orders or something along those lines. And that's because when we work with our local fleets, we don't purchase simply on the open market from them. We don't say, Hey, we have this one trailer we need you to take here. We buy the capacity for blocks of time so that that driver doesn't do anything except for baton work. And the thing is we also, we, we structure the agreement with our carriers that it works out very well financially for them. So, you know, what our carriers will do is they'll even acquire assets uh, because for them, you know, it's effectively a risk-free way of developing, really building equity in an asset. Scale. Um, exactly. You provide, yeah, you provide the reduced risk on the business side so that when they go and get the exposure on the asset side, it's a win-win for both parties. Are you talking like they're buying more trailers up or what do you mean when you say that? So they're, they're buying more tractors up. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. So that we, we don't own, we don't manage directly. Like the only trailers that we deal with are our customers. So the, the, the tractors on the other hand, that's where our local dedicated fleets, they're buying the equipment there. So there's also that benefit in that in order to work with Baton, you don't need to buy tra- trailers. In fact, like, I don't really care how many trailers you have. It's, I mean, it's essentially power only. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, and then we work directly with the drivers day in, day out because um, the level of communication, the sort of the, the quality of communication and the frequency of communication is so important into how we're able to reduce the inefficiencies that we see, because that's where, I mean, the, the fact is drivers have so much more information than people give them credence to a lot of times, at least in the, you know, in the brokerage community, drivers are really the holders of the keys physically, obviously, because they're the ones in the truck, but then also no like, they're intended. the ones that will tell you, if you do this, then you'll find out this information about this facility so that we spend that much less time there. Yeah. That's Ben, you've talked about that before is you can, a lot of the times the most valuable knowledge and feedback comes from the drivers. They're the boots on the ground. They know what's going on. Just like, and it's funny was I, and I realized that when I went to yards, similar to what you're saying in LA, when I was out to Maersk's yards and I saw to some of Damco's DCs and went to these places where the container yards were and stuff. And I'm like, does anyone know where some of this stuff is? And they're like, well, this one should be here. And you'd walk around and you're like, yeah, it's not here. And then four people are literally walking around these whole yards trying to find one. And you're like, this happens all day long. And they're like, yeah, we're working on systems. And you're like, this is part of just how the industry runs. Yeah. But now then layer in the fact that we're in the middle of a global pandemic and a lot of these DCs don't want drivers getting out of their cabs. So you're not walking around anymore. You're, you're, you know, you're putzing around in a day cab or a sleep or worse. Which means that even fewer drivers can be in the facility getting their trailer at any one point. Like in the whole thing just compounds because it's a mess. Exactly. So how do you guys address that? Right. Do you like map the yards out to where like you have live interfaces with visibility into when they're getting picked up, when they're being dropped? Do you have GPS on these trailers where you can physically see and confirm it? Or are you doing this relaying information? So that's a, that's a great question. So the, there's a couple different answers to it because what we've found is that if we try to address in any one way, that's just not enough. And so we have to address it with a very multi-pronged sort of approach. Um, GPS on trailers, absolutely. You know, we, we, we look to have that information from our customers because knowing where a trailer is in a yard makes a world difference because even if the, you know, when you in-gate at a location, they give you a slip that says it's in this spot in this particular zone, there's chances someone moved it. There's a chance a yard go moved it. And, you know, yep. maybe it's a spot over, but maybe it's on the other side of the, uh, effectively of the driving aisle, if you will, at which point, like, you're not going to look for it the same way necessarily. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one way. The other way is the facilities themselves will have a lot of information and they're very interested frequently in helping uh, providers to understand where trailers are because it helps them to turn more 
more trailers Absolutely. or loads yeah. or more freight in general. Um, and then the other thing is that, uh, you know, again, we, we make sure to, we make sure to not just listen, but ask the drivers for that information, ask the drivers for that sort of intelligence, have them explain to us, um, you know, where is like, what is the sort of general layout? We can see it obviously on Google maps, but I mean, this is where the end gate is, but then what's happening right here that there seems to be such a delay. Why is there so much time spent in this particular location? And, you know, how do we make sure to, how do we make sure to help you know what you can do to avoid slowing down there? Think of it kind of like um, a TSA line, like the, the person who's going through a TSA line for the first time ever, they're not going to think about untying their shoes because they need to put them on the belt. Mm, Someone yeah. who's flown a bunch of times is in fact, just going to wear a different type of shoe that they don't have to tie. Yep. And so being able to provide that sort of information is also what really makes a huge difference. And those are really, that's just a few of them. I mean, there's obviously like the, the things that we work on are, there's a lot of them because again, this is the, this is the problem that we are obsessed about. That brings up a, a good point in brokers in general is that there, there's a value add and you just gave a great example of it with that analogy right there. But there's a value add that goes into a lot of different aspects of the transaction from you know the pre-pickup to the pickup to any stop along the way to delivery. There's a lot of little nuances and, and things that need to be, that should be, discussed and in, in information given by the broker to that driver or carrier to make everything more efficient. And a lot of times when brokers fail to do that, it results in people getting pissed off. And, you know, ultimately we've got this big feud between carriers and brokers for a bunch of reasons, but honestly, that's probably one of the big ones is that there's carriers are not seeing the value in a lot of the big brokers out there because they're, they're just, they think that they're just, they're just making money and they're not really helping the carrier out. So, um, and I think you you guys are definitely have identified a huge problem and you're you're solving it. Let me ask you this: so, um, as an outsider looking in, where you know what is Baton doing versus like a convoy or an Uber freight? Do you guys play in the same market at all when it comes to trying to create that efficiency, or are you guys totally on different ends of the spectrum? We're, we're on, I wouldn't even say different ends of the spectrum because those like convoy, for example, just to use, use them, uh, you know, for the point of the conversation, um, you know, convoy is a tech company. Um, but the, the way that they're solving the problem is on just a different plane than we are. Um, and by the way, I'll, I'll say this also, I have a, a tremendous amount of respect for, for the, the, the team over at convoy. I think that they've done some really, really cool things. Um, but they're going after it from a sort of like a, a market level freight visibility, you know, and, and they have facility insights, but the, the, the granularity of information that we look to glean about facilities is just, it's an entirely different level. Like they'll have facility insights as to what's the average waiting time. We want to get to facility insights as to what's the difference in speed when a driver enters through this location versus this location. And if a driver does these things ahead of time, what happens? Or if it's this time of day, um, you know, what are going to be the likely holdups that a driver is going to experience when checking in? Because we get that information again. Um, those companies are, again, they're focused on it at a market level. And, and so they will bid on, let's say like, again, Walmart, cause it's an easy ship, for example, they'll bid on Walmart's annual drive-in bid. We won't do that. They may, in fact, Convoy may, in fact, end up working with us, um, you know, just in the same way that we've supported other broker customers. We're not going after OTR freight at all. The, the average length of haul for our orders is 15. Um, I mean, I looked the other day, it was uh, like 13.6 miles. It's, it's short. And that's how we want it. And that's, I mean, we, we tailor the way that we work with everything is, you know, the types of equipment that we push our local fleets to have, um, the way that we schedule our local drivers and the hours that they start, like everything that we do is centered around that business model. We're not interested in, you know, inter-regional or really even like, we're not really interested in going outside of a major metro. So you're not, you're, you're not like a national freight matching type of, and I, that's where I see like a convoy or like an Uber freight. I feel like that's the market that they want to play in. I was just curious if, um, if you guys had any kind of similarities in, in areas that you guys operate in. it sounds like you have more, more so of a different focus than you do as a similar focus. So, I mean, you're both solving problems that exist out there, but just mm -hmm. not really the same problems. So, yeah. Yeah. And we're just, we're attacking to your point, we're attacking different issues in the industry. 
Gotcha. So what's the future look like for you guys? And obviously you guys have been around, what is it a couple of years now or a year, year to two? Uh, what, what's the, what phase are you guys in? Is it infancy? Are we growing and what's the future look like? So we are, um, so we're seed stage. We've been around just North of a year. In fact, just the other day I got a, um, I got a notification on LinkedIn uh, to congratulate one of our co-founders for having been a baton for a year. <laughs> um, nice. So we, you know, we've been around for a year, which is exciting. Just it was last week that we found out we made the freight tech 25. We were number 13 on that list. You know, so there's, there's validation in that we've been at it for very slightly over a year and, and we're already getting that sort of traction in terms of the future. What I think is really exciting is that this, this model will give an opportunity to autonomous vehicle technology to, I think, accelerate the deployment of it. Because while everybody is really focused on how you get trucks to drive themselves, yep. there is still the question as to, well, what happens when it's not on the highway and it needs to go into, you know, LA and in the inland empire, for example, where you deal with, you know, a lot more traffic and stoplights that are down and, you know, streets that are driven on and, and, and so forth and so on. And pedestrians that are, you know, stuff that like you won't encounter, encounter excuse me, during highway driving. And it's perfectly aligned, right? The solution is almost perfectly in line with the problem that autonomous driving is trying to solve, right? Is they can get trucks to run down the highway, right? At 65 miles an hour when you don't have to make a left or right and you're just staying in a lane. What they're not able to do, even in the, I mean, even in the residential vehicles or, you know, the however you would define it, right? It's driving through the city. It's driving through pedestrian areas, right? Roundabouts. Yeah. yeah. So if you can load a driverless truck to go from, you know, 14 miles outside of LA's traffic straight to Chicago, drop that trailer with an autonomous vehicle and have a local driver pick it up. That's what the autonomous companies are doing. A lot of them too simple is they have like drivers sitting in and they're driving them like drones around the cities because right. they can't figure out how to handle that part of the journey anyway. Well, imagine too, just the sort of bummer that, that you'd have if you managed to build this incredible technology that, you know, pilots a truck all the way across the country autonomously. And then you arrive six hours before your appointment. You're like, so what do we do now guys? Yeah. Um, <laughs> Put it in idle. <laughs> Let it sit. <laughs> but they're twiddling uh, your thumbs. I don't um, but Eric, I don't know. That, Cause I, and honestly, like think about this until you said it again and we've had this conversation, but like even in this, in this conversation right now, Think about how those times are actually even set to begin with, right? They're like, okay, well, you're going to pick up here. This is the drop. You look at average 550 miles a day, and then you guess, and then you schedule the appointment. So just as likely as you, exactly, just as likely as you are to be late, you are to be earlier, you're never going to guess that accurately. So both sides of that is just a ton of opportunity cost for efficiency. Yeah. I mean, so to that point, I... When I was at LoadSmart, I, in general, I obsess over service. I, you know, I, I firmly believe that the purpose of operations at pretty much any company, but at least speci specifically in logistics, is to deliver the greatest customer experience at the lowest possible cost. That's the purpose of operations. So I obsess about service because it comes first in that sentence. Um, I can tell you firsthand how, how challenging it is to still have a driver hit on time to, you know, 99.7, of the time I can, I like firsthand, I can tell you how hard that is. And we're, yeah. again, we're running local freight. Thinking back to my experience, you know, previous experience when, when I obsessed about service and understood how important, how critical scheduling is to that, the likelihood that you're going to, like, you're absolutely going to snipe that transit is just, it's so low that you shouldn't take credit for it even. Yep. Like people that say I'm great at scheduling, what that should mean is you're fast. It should not mean that like you're really great at picking good times because congratulations, like one, everybody's automating that. But then two, like that's like having gilded pipes for plumbing in your house. Like who cares? Nobody buys that. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's also like all of the risks to variance are all unknown anyway. You have no idea how many red lights, you have no idea how many accidents, you have no idea what the weather is, you have no idea what the equipment, I mean, in some cases you've got an idea what the equipment's gonna do, but for the most part, tires still go out and everything that happens on the road like is never going to be consistent. It's not a train. It's not an I would, airplane. I would challenge, we went through this exercise at Load Smart. I would challenge anybody who's listening to look at only loads that were perfectly on time, perfectly, uh, you know, pick up on time, deliver on time. There was nothing rescheduled in between and look at the average miles per 24 hour period that you cover at night. 
almost, I'd be willing to bet an absurd amount of money that it's less than 520 miles per 24 hours. I'd say that's pretty accurate. And everybody, yeah. by the way, still schedules on 550 per 24. Yep. Cause that's what everybody's taught to do. And the other right. interesting thing is that's where I think a lot of brokers are hanging their hat and saying, you know what, like our industry, we're never going to go away. You can't automate this. I've got to call the driver every day. I check the mileage and then I look back to see how close they are. And you just keep trying to, sometimes you move that drop window to accommodate the driver if at all possible. But other than that, sometimes your hands are just tied and it right. is what it is. And this is, so, you know, shameless plug for, for my last company for Loadsmart, but this is where I think that they're working on some really, really incredible things where, you know, you, you, you work to automate scheduling. Um, and if the, the receiver has a doc scheduling program that you can, you know, a platform that you can get an API into, why wouldn't you reschedule that as the driver gets closer? Like you have better intelligence, you have a much greater understanding of when that driver is going to land. Why, like, why wouldn't you reschedule that cost, real time, right? Without a person, yeah, a computer will do it better because math. Yeah. That's all that it is. So. Love it, love it, love it. Good stuff. Um, any any other thoughts on uh, on baton the problems in the industry at detention and dwell on efficiencies? We've got some good Q and A to wrap up the episode, but I don't I don't want to. I don't want to steal the thunder here if, if we've got more to go down the rabbit hole. Um, you know, I, I think that the, the thing is that there needs to be across the industry, a cultural shift that, and let's, let's not even get to detention yet. Let's just focus on dwell, but there needs to be a cultural shift that dwell needs to be fixed is I think the most important thing. Like there needs to be like, there needs to be actual like frustration and anger and not just from the carriers. I can tell you with full confidence that the carriers feel it, they see it, they know yeah. it's there and they're irritated by it, but everyone else in the industry. So technology companies, brokers, um, shippers, shippers, receivers, uh, bill auditing companies, all of these, these different platforms, they need to have an actual frustration. There needs to be a cultural shift in the industry. The fact that this level of inefficiency exists and, and that we as an industry struggle with things like a driver shortage. But that's and, the thing. That's what it gets painted as, right? The pain's there. They're all paying for that cost. Every person you, you, you talked to, you just named right there, except that every one of them just goes, well, we need more drivers and the problem it is away. what it is. Yeah. Yeah. And that's absurd. It's, it's absolutely absurd to me. And so I, I think that the key is that there just, there needs to be a cultural shift that, that these problems need to be solved. Obviously I want everybody to solve these problems with baton, but I also just want these problems to be solved. Like it's, again, it's, yeah, it's awareness unacceptable to go. in my opinion. Yeah. So, or at the very least awareness, like mm -hmm. this is why costs are going up. This is one way that they could be reduced for everyone, but nobody seems to want to be aware. And it's funny, Ben, because we've had so many questions asked to us of how to deal with detention. How much should I be paying somebody or, Drivers out of hours. How do I deal with it? So we look at the the issue already happened. What do I do now? But we and it's funny, like you said, it's it needs to be a cultural shift. We I still have always looked at it as it is what it is. It's going to be there. It's just what do you do after it happens? And the the real the real thought process and mentality should be how do we prevent it? So and I like that. I just I've never had a paradigm shift until we've had this conversation today. So and I think the, and we've noticed that. Yeah. I mean, we've okay, noticed okay. that. And I think that's what we're trying to do with Freight 360 is I think this problem also stems from a lack of communication within the industry. I think non-competes in some way contribute to that. You don't have people that see this in one company able to collaborate with somebody in another. And a lot of times people are really just have their blinders on and go, how much can I book in revenue this week? Instead of looking at how their job interacts with somebody, even in their own company, let alone outside in the industry. There's just a... Mm -hmm constant absence of this over and over mm -hmm. again. Yeah. Yeah. The, so one of the, one of the things I've learned working at, at startups that have very high powered teams um, is that, and I, I learned this, you know, shout out to, uh, to Ricardo Salgado, because this is, this is the specific person I learned this from, but when you focus, when the entire team is obsessed about something, when everyone is obsessed about something, you fix it. Like you solve it, come hell or high water. Yep. So long as you have the right people in the room. Um, and so in the same way, you know, that there needs to be, again, to, to go back to that point earlier, there needs to be a recognition in the industry. There needs to be a focus in the industry that these things need to be fixed. 
because if, if you think about even just like, if you care about emissions and, uh, you know, environmental responsibility, this means you have more trucks driving more miles. miles on the highway. Yep. Um, if you care about anyone's time by just being, you know, a good, simple, a uh, simply good human being, this means that you have more drivers who are either making more money for their time or they're spending more time doing other things because, you know, their earnings are balanced out. If you care about just general broad efficiency, cause you're an operations nerd, like I am, like you should, I, I don't even need to explain why you'd be obsessed with this problem. Cause you will be all of the reasons are there as to why this needs to be fixed. It's just that, Again, and, and huge kudos to, to, to Nate Robert and to Andrew Burbrick that, you know, for, for identifying this and for deciding that they wanted to address this. But there's like there needs to be there, there has to be uh, a sort of a paradigm shift to the way that we think about waste in the industry. I totally agree. I think we need to schedule our next call and follow up, connect us with 8VC so we can start getting that awareness and that uh, message out and get some funding. <laughs> Love it. Good talk. Good discussion. All right. Let's, uh, I, I got a few questions here. Q and a, um, Eric, if you have any desire to hop in on these, feel free. Otherwise just enjoy the ride for the next, uh, few minutes here. So the, the, the first question we got here is, uh, we'll go with this one. This is about, um, email blasting carriers. So a lot of times uh, I've had people ask me, you know, brokers ask, Hey, I, you know, instead of using load posting and stuff like that, I've got a, I've got a carrier database. Is there a certain tool I should be using to, to email blast my carriers for upcoming projects or available loads that I've got going out for my shippers? Cause people are like, Oh, I'm just going to throw 20,000 carriers on a, you know, BCC line and outlook. Yeah. And then, you know, that's not going to be an issue. Um, I'll tell you that I've seen like MailChimp has been a, a decent solution. Um, Constant contacts, another one, but even better. I think when people, I, I've seen TMS plugins where there's the ability to do carrier offering based on historical lanes that they've run for you that you can see in your system based on their availability. I'm not a huge fan of just blasting out to 20,000 emails to everybody. It's almost like spamming. Ben, what do you think? I totally agree. I mean, the way I approach this is I do use email and I, or I did in, as it regards to this, but it was more on regions and cares I had relationships with. So if it's 10 or 15 that I'm using consistently, I might kick an email over, but these are also people I've had the conversation with first and said, Hey, if I get these loads coming up, do you want me to keep you in the loop? And if you got an em empty guy, you want, you want informed and they're like, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Add me to those those are the people that I'm emailing. Yeah. I think if you can tighten up the shock group and get a, a less, less of a shotgun blast out there, but more of a, a, a honed in um, target, like think about even what Kevin Hill was telling us on the last episode with his, his website where he's compiled, not just the, the carrier, but preferred lanes, equipment types, yep. stuff like that. If you can hone that in and not spam 20,000 people, but actually give a realistic offering to 15 to 20, you're probably you're probably going to have more, you know. How did how did you handle that, Eric? When you ran ops and you did a lot of this, well, what was your preferred method other than load boards for reaching out to carriers? So, so we used email. Um, I won't have a good answer. I don't have a good answer as to what platforms are available out there because I, I've been in the custom tech game for long enough that I, you know, I, I haven't really yeah. kept a really great pulse on what sort of tools are out there. What I will say, though, is is what you guys are saying, I, I, I could not agree with it more. Sending out every single opportunity you have to every single carrier is the fastest way to have no one open your email or for even worse, no one even sees the email because it goes to spam. Yep. Um, you know, and, and the, the thing is like, there is a, there's a, a tremendous amount of documentation on how email marketing works and the conversion rates and the different things you need to include in the subject line and the body and so forth. And like how long the body should be all that stuff. Um, and so the, the, the takeaway I would have is one, don't spam people Two, make it interesting for them. And then three, um, if, if this, like, if, if you're not able to do those things, don't try to build, but buy. And that's something that will pay for itself very quickly. Agreed. I like it. <laughs> three different responses on it. Yeah. I dig it. I dig it. All right. Next question. Um, uh, any agent based companies that also have assets. So this is from a guy that said he's, he's going to make the leap from being a W2 and he's, he's going to be an agent. He wants to know, is there, is there companies out there that are also asset based if you're an agent? And I will say, yes, the company I work for Pierce worldwide, we have an asset division, but that being said, 
anyone that is a broker or an agent for a brokerage, because a company has assets does not mean you're going to be able to dedicate capacity to your customers. And that should be an expectation that is set up front. Um, that's why I think that companies that are straight broker and not asset-based that are super, super big, they're valuable because you're going to be brokering regardless of whether you're an asset-based brokerage or just a straight broker-only brokerage because of what your value add is to your shippers, to the carriers that you partner with, et cetera. Just because you have an asset authority, sure, you might get in the door and check a box for a certain shipper, but there's hundreds of hundreds of thousands of other shippers out there. So, Ben, do you have any, uh, I guess, the broader the broader topic, if you're an asset-based brokerage versus just broker only, do you see any true benefit other than just checking that box for a certain customer? The two things come to mind is one is the ability to be able to get through that objection of, do you have assets? And I'd I'd be willing to bet 50% of the people that ask that question want to have assets just so when they're cold calling, they have the ability to say they have assets. Yeah. And that that is nice. So I do enjoy that about, about my company, but you know, I think the second the one delivery is, on it is I think right. where the expectation has failed. I mean, I worked with a lot of brokerages that had assets and a lot of them were agent models and you use them for certain things, just like we were talking about in the context of the last one, right? Know who's good at what, know when they have the available capacity for the, the dedicated lanes. And it's great to have them in your pocket, but they're absolutely not going to be your go-to over and over again, right? They're, and it's a different model, right? When everybody wants to kind of compare them and mix them, I, I just think that's where a lot of confusion lies is that the asset model is different than the brokerage model. Both yeah. have things. That- there are, um, I, I will say that the, having the asset authority is, there are some nuance, some strange things. Like for example, to be a member of UIIA, you've got to be asset based. You if you want to use the yep. Selectus load board now, the, the, the Selectus Alliance through Omnitracks for expedite hotshot freight, you can no longer be broker only. You've got to have an asset MC, uh, as well. Even though you're going to advertise as a broker on there, they're trying to limit and weed out the amount of people in there that are trying to hop into that opportunity. So that is one good thing is some of the partnerships and companies that you can be affiliated with are going to require that you have to be a carrier in some aspect. Um, so yeah, interesting, uh, interesting topic. So whoever asked that question, give me a call if you're, uh, if you're, if you're curious. Um, so the, to jump into that really quickly, cause I've I've spent a lot of time when I was in consulting, I'd spent a lot of time on, on these sorts of things. So if you're, what I would say to this is there are companies with assets that have invested sufficiently and done a tremendous job at building a brokerage operation. Uh, yeah. Really great example, Werner, uh, Knight Swift, uh, Schneider, JB Hunt. But the thing that's in common about all of those companies is that they have access to a trim, like a humongous amount of capital. Um, what I have seen is that when you look at smaller companies that have agencies for brokerage agencies, but they're asset based companies is when you have a truck, your first and foremost focus will be making sure you keep that truck running and that you keep that truck operating profitably. Because if you don't, you have this gigantic expense that's just sitting there. And then you have, on the other hand, this variable cost model, which is a beautiful model. Like the brokerage model is great, but you have this variable cost model that it's easy. It's, it's, it's dangerously easy to not pay attention to, to not invest in. So the thing I would say is if you're going to look at that, if you're evaluating those companies, look at the technology that they can offer you, that they're going to support with you, ask them how they've invested in the brokerage um, in the past couple of years. And like some of the examples, Um, because at the end of the day, if what to your, both of your points, if you're using that asset as a, as a sales crutch, I would say learn how to get around the sales crutch because you can't learn how to get around the fact that your company is not going to invest in the tools that you need and you, yeah, you need them. So funny about that, that you say that is I had two or three people in the past week that are with brokerages that have that issue and now want to find another home is, you know what? I was told they were going to invest in the tech, the platform and all the ability to actually do the fundamental aspects, fundamental aspects of my job aren't here. So yeah, I can say we have assets, but the tools I really need, they're not being invested in and we don't have them or the ability to do the stuff to really do my job more efficiently. That's a great point. And that brought up two points for me I want to hit on real quick. So Ben, we've talked about this before. I've said so many times, a lot of times I've seen a, um, a asset company, just like, you know, a straight carrier that's like, oh, we want to get our broker authority. And to Eric's point, they, they're like, well, I got to keep this truck loaded. If my truck's not loaded, I'm not making money there. 
So I'm going to let the brokerage fall by the wayside. And next thing you know, there, no one's actually focusing on it. So if, you, if yep. you're not going to truly dedicate your time, effort, and resources to, to running the brokerage, it's probably not even worth doing both. Um, the other side of that, the technology piece, this is so true. And, and I think this was part of the, the blog that I put out in the last couple of weeks on five uh, tips of success for brokers was staying up to speed with technology because it's such an such an ever-evolving part of our industry is like TMS platforms, integrations, in-transit visibility, all that stuff, uh, rating tools that if you are not at least up to speed with the current stuff, let alone ahead of it, you're going to fall behind very, very fast. And that's going to frustrate your uh, your brokers, the agents that are working for you, uh, operations people. Um, those are, you know, technology is designed to make our our job easier and faster so we can do more of our job and make more money, not have to click a button, you know, 10 different buttons to make something happen when it could happen automate, automatically automated or just with one click. So that's my take on it. Good stuff. Good stuff. All right. Last question here. Um, speaking of uh, technology and in-transit visibility, uh, the, this broker asked, what should I do when a driver is refusing to accept macro point after the carrier already agreed to it. So it doesn't have to be macro point. Let's, you know, Descartes, yes, they've got macro point. Truck stop has their own tracking. Uh, Transflow has tracking. I mean, there's there's so many different tracking options out there. Um, The question is though, the the carrier agreed and the rate con was sent. Dispatcher said, yep, we're gonna take it. We'll, we'll, We'll do GPS tracking. Broker goes to set the actual driver up and now they're not agreeing to, uh, to accept it. Um, Ben, what do you think? And then I'll give you my take. My this, this is, this is a real problem that I hear about more All than the time. I think. I, and I, I do also want to hear, there's a lot of communication issues in here though. Mine was, and it doesn't prevent it, but it at the very least gets them to accept it is that I'm not going to send dispatch instructions until they accept it. And then they're going to get their, their details. I mean, you're still going to have people that then turn it off later, which still occurs or the second day or the third day, depending on how far it is. That's still going to happen. But at the very least, it eliminates the people that had no intention of doing it to begin with. That was kind of my SOP with it. So one of the best practices that I've seen is to not give full pickup address, just give uh, city, city and state until it's accepted for that same reason that you just said. It not only prevents back solicitation, but it's going to ensure that their GPS is turned on if that's contingent on them taking the load. Um, further, it's important to put ver- the verbiage in the Raycon that's going to also include any kind of fees or deductions that come along with failure to comply with that. Because it's not just that the broker wants to be lazy and not do check calls. The customer might want to be the one receiving updates every four hours. Maybe they're using yep. a, the, the critical one-hour updates through MacroPoint, and that, it's a very hot shipment. Maybe you've got an AOG, right? And this, you got to get this engine part to the, you know, to wherever it's going to get that plane back up and flying. It's a very expensive uh, problem here. So, those are my two things: is um, have repercussions listed out. Um, also, to like you said before, don't give that full pickup address until they've they've complied with it. Um, but I think the bigger problem here is the carrier is having a communication issue internally between their dispatcher, the carrier's policy, and the actual driver that's that's hauling that load. So there's only so much you can do. Those are some mitigating things for brokers. Eric, do you have any input on this one? Um, you could say no. Yeah, so I, my my answer when I was a broker would have been different than my answer now. Uh, my answer now before? is, what was it before? Um, I was dealing with things at larger scale. So it wasn't like this one driver. If it was a one driver, it'd have been like, all right, well one can, you know, is, is it, how much does a customer care? What's the repercussions of it? Like, is it going to kill us if we don't have tracking? Mm-hmm. Um, if it's not going to kill us, then whatever, like, let's not like, it sucks. And let's make sure that we think about this next time we put this carrier on a load, but like, it's not worth going through all of the challenges and all the pain that we're going to have to go through at the end of the day. Like there's only so much you can do to get this guy to use it. Um, what I would, what I would think about now is why isn't the driver using it? Because yes. if, if the driver's not using it because he doesn't want to be tracked via GPS, um, there's a whole bunch of reasons as to why that might happen. But in, in particular, either he has GPS on his truck that his dispatcher knows about at which point, like, 
okay, get it from the dispatcher instead. It's a manual solution or instead like figure out a way to get it automated. Um, which isn't hard again. Like there's, there are, there are solutions out there like project 44 that make these things tremendously. I've said tremendously like 17 times on this podcast that make it so much easier to do, to do these things and to track via GPS. The other thing is if the driver thinks that you want to track him and doesn't actually see any benefit from it, why would he do it? Yep. Like I wouldn't. That's a great great point. point. Sell the driver on it, right? Explain to them why the shipper wants it, why it's there. And it's not because you want to micromanage them and, be a lot more willing to accept it when they understand back to this earlier, right? Their purpose. What is the purpose of this, right? Give them the context. Right. And, and to that same point, you have to walk the walk if you're going to talk the talk. So if you're going to explain to the driver, we're, you know, we're going to, the number of times I've heard people say, we want to track our drivers via GPS. So we don't call them who call anyway. Yep. Like that just doesn't make sense. Yeah. I, again, for that same reason, the first time that I got a call from you doing a check call, after I had turned on GPS, I would not only turn off my GPS, but I would, I would just not answer. Yep. Cause it's, it's annoying. It's, it's, it's like a lack of trust. Yeah. Yeah. I think and some like, brokers just assume that every single carrier the out there is that, that they're just dicking around the entire time and they're not, uh, they're not driving them when they should. So I agree. Right. Which is, is, is also a thing is like, if you even just think about it, if you step back, drivers don't get paid for the most part, unless they drive. Yeah. So, the, hanging out in the, the middle of the country doing line. what? Yeah, just hanging out, looking at the scenery, not getting paid, not with their family, <laughs> not doing anything they want to do, just sitting there for the sake of sitting there. Uh, right. You know, if it's again, if it's a hot shipment, different protocol. If you're dealing with like a high value, high risk, obviously a different sort of protocol. Um, but I mean, if it's just like any other load, if it's just you know, if you just happen to be moving a you know a bunch of widgets across the country, and it's it's really nothing special, but the shipper wants to have, have mm-hmm. if they want updates every one hour. Um, you know, but again, I just, it just doesn't, there are solutions to it that if like, if you're going to try to spend time figuring out how to get inside of the driver's head and like making the driver do something, even though you're physically not even close to them, let alone, you probably will never meet them. You're wasting your time. Yeah, I agree. Good stuff. But maybe, I don't know. I'm also, I think maybe I'm just a cynic. After. No, I mean, it's, uh, it's good to, to get different, mm. different perspectives on it. It's, it's also cool to see what your thought was in the past as a broker versus now. So it's good. Good stuff. All right. Good episode. Um, ben, we got some, we got some good stuff coming up down the road here. We do got a new, uh, actually by the time this comes out, you'll have a new, another new video up online. Um, blogs are coming out. The videos are going up. The Facebook group is growing. I love it. A lot of good discussion there. Um, before we wrap it up, Eric, if, uh, if someone wants to get in touch with you, we'll make sure we put some info in the show notes, but is there a preferred method? Do you want phone call, email, website, submission? What's the best way? Um, email would be great. So, so my email is eric, E-R-I-K, at baton.io. Uh, you know, just that, that simple. Uh, What's email the I-O? I've always been curious on that. Um, is that just like a new, like, dot .com, dot .net, dot org.mil. Yeah, I guess of sorts. I I knew in the standpoint that people have, you know, recently started using them. Um, they're not, I don't, you know, it's, it's not necessarily new in that they like just came around, but, uh, yeah, I dig it. Yeah. Uh, I mean, IO. Yeah. And, and .io.co, those are all like, I think those are also generally, those are either startups or tech companies is where I see those consistently. Gotcha. Cool. Good stuff. Well, Ben, you have a proverb for us? I don't. Whether you believe you can or believe you can't, you're right. Until next time, go Bills. That wraps up this episode of Freight 360. Thanks for joining us. Make sure to check out all the other episodes for even more great content. Check out the show notes for links to any articles and content that we referenced on this episode. Visit us on the web at www.freight360.net. And if you'd like to learn more about a new home for your agency, contact me directly. And if you'd like to learn more about me coming out to run a free complimentary sales training for your team, check me out on LinkedIn or again at www.freight360.net.